Hello and welcome back to another episode of Flush. I'm your host, Eva, and it is the last Tuesday of the month. So we are doing a Q&A episode today and the questions are so fucking fire that I cannot wait to get into them. But before we do, I'm going to go on a rant that's going to offend a lot of people (laughs) and it's not going to be likable. And quite frankly, I maybe would get canceled for it, but the good thing about never having been greenlit is you really can't be canceled. So (laughs) hopefully I don't lose too many listeners for this. We need to stop having weddings. We need to stop having fucking weddings. I'm so fucking sick of going to people's weddings. Like, has there ever been a greater display of self-centeredness and narcissism than a fucking wedding? Like, you, A, are going into debt. Statistically, you are most likely going into debt to throw this massive party that is actually just something that's emblematic of the patriarchy. But let's just put the historic underpinnings of the concept of marriage and the ceremony and ritual of weddings aside for a hot minute. And let's just focus on the present reality. Okay, you're doing something that's by all accounts needless. It is needless. Like there is no need to be having this massive party. You're going into tremendous amounts of debt to have this massive party because society is ingrained into you that you have to do this and you have to do that. And you, whether you admit it to yourself or not, are feeling internal pressure to do it bigger and better than other people. And like, well, Susie had this at her gift station and, you know, Nancy had steak. And so we have to have steak. And like, uh, you know, Charlotte had this colored bridesmaid dresses. So I have to do this, whatever. You're trying to one-up other people, whether you acknowledge it to yourself or not, you are trying to one-up other people and other weddings that you've been to, and you're forcing a bunch of fucking people to most likely travel because we're all spread out. So if someone has to travel to your wedding, just know that they are paying minimum a thousand dollars to get there and then they have to get you like a hundred dollar gift at minimum so we're talking in the thousands that people have to spend money to come what listen to people say shit about your relationship are you so insecure about your fucking relationship that a you have to sign a contract with someone to make sure that they never leave you b you're forcing a bunch of fucking people into a sad ass hotel ballroom to listen to your great aunt give a toast about how she thought you were going to die alone, but finally you found someone who fucking loves you. And we have to pay thousands of dollars for this bullshit to eat mediocre food at banquet room A. Enough. Enough. Like if we just stop this fucking charade, do you know how much better of a place the economy would be in? You don't need to spend a hundred grand on a fucking party just because Susie did. You don't need to invest that money. Invest it. Make your money work for you. Get some financial stability. Get some financial security. 
Don't go into debt. We need to stop the charade. I don't want to see a bunch of bitches in lilac dresses standing next to you, ooing and eyeing. No one gives a shit. No one gives a shit about your relationship other than you. And now we have to spend an entire weekend pretending we give a shit while burning a hole in our fucking wallets for what? No, but like weddings can be kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I expect everyone to be at mine. I'm just kidding. I don't really want to do it. Listen, whatever you want to do, do it. I think the reason that I got so fired up about it is because we really have convinced ourselves that we're supposed to do certain things. And I think if you take a big step back and really think about what matters in life, I don't think having this overly expensive party is it. And I think most people looking back at their weddings would be like, that was kind of fucking chuggy and you know, I wish that we weren't in a Hyatt ballroom, like, you know, doing the shout dance. And, you know, my grandma broke a hip because I convinced her that she had to dance all day. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, I just, I just, I'm going to stop going. I'm going to stop going to people's weddings. That's my new thing. In fact, I've gotten a bunch of wedding invitations for the fall because whatever. And um, I, I've i just decided to RSVP no to one of them. Basically, Ozzy, if it's your first time listening, hi, sorry, this must be uh, startling. So we refer to my boyfriend as Ozzy on the podcast. He is not named Ozzy. He is Australian. That's where it comes from. Anyway, so Ozzy's going to be traveling for work during this one particular wedding. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to go without you. And then I was like, wait, I cannot go. I cannot go. Like, no one's holding a gun to my head and forcing me to the, go to this bullshit. I'm going to RSVP no. I've never been happier. I'll send a fucking $200 gift because I'm going to save so much money by not traveling that I may as well. Everyone wins. Everyone wins. I'm going to start saying no to weddings. And... I mean, the only (laughs) thing is like, what if like I'm going to a wedding next weekend and I'm a bridesmaid in the wedding? Obviously, I'm going to go to that. It's too late to not go. But next time I'm asked to be a bridesmaid, is it acceptable to say no? (laughs) Like, could you imagine if I was like, ooh, I love you, would love to celebrate with you. The only thing is I really fucking hate weddings and I don't want to go and I don't want to like incur the cost anymore. So I'm going to have to politely decline. Also, I think it's really chuggy that you're having a wedding and that you have a bunch of fucking bridesmaids. Grow up, Nancy. Grow the fuck up. I'm just kidding. Do what you want. Honestly, if having a big wedding makes you happy, by all means do it. You know, I'm I'm kind of teasing, but I would really look inward and see if that's actually what you want to do. Or if you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, or if you're trying to recreate your parents' special day, or if, you know, society is just ingrained in you that this is what matters. Because I can guarantee you in a few years, they're going to be like, fuck, I really wish we hadn't spent so much money. In fact, I don't know a single married couple. And these are people who continue to be married, by the way. I'm not even touching the people who got divorced because you know what they're going to say. But I don't know a single married couple who doesn't think, damn, I wish I had 
spent less money and stressed less over this fucking party that I somehow someone ingrained in me was going to be the most important day of my life because guess what? It wasn't. Find me one person. Find me one person who's like, no, we did an excellent job by going into debt for one party. It was a really great financial decision. We love it. (laughs) No one, no one thinks that. Um, anyway, moving right along, we're just gonna jump right into the questions. If you're sticking here and not shutting this off and giving it a zero star review. In fact, ooh, I'm also, um, having a little drink because we're gonna go to a friend's birthday party right after this. And so I didn't really want to (laughs) go. So I figured I'll just have a little drink, you know, get a little loose for the pot. So I'm going to have a sip of my drink right now. By the way, this is not an ad, but I do have an affiliate code for this drink. Um, It's Pulp Culture. And it's really the only way that I like to drink alcohol because it's cold pressed juice that they ferment until it becomes alcoholic. And then they add herbs and medicinal mushrooms in it. So I really like this um, variety of it. It's called Restore. And it has grapefruit, goji berry, dandelion, milk thistle, and maitake. Milk thistle is a great herb for cleansing the liver, which is ironic because this is alcohol. Um, Dandelion root is also really good for cleansing the liver and just like general detox. Um, Maitake is a type of mushroom that's actually quite delicious. Um, But yeah, it has literally no sugar in it because all of the sugars ferment out. And yeah, it's really great. I mean, all the flavors kind of taste the same because they just taste really like fermented is the only way I could describe it, like tangy, the way something that's properly lacto-fermented would taste. But I will say, I think this is the healthiest way to drink. I mean, it has 13 different strains of probiotics in it um, with over 6 billion CFUs. I mean, that's better than most probiotic supplements out there. And if you want to order it, I do have an affiliate code. Um, It's H-I-W-A, which is pronounced HIVA, not HIWA, but but it is what it is. Okay, I'm going to take a sip and we're going to get right into the questions because like I said, we have a fire lineup and also I'm so sorry if I offended anyone with my wedding tirade, but really just look inwards. Instead of getting mad at me, look inwards is all I'm going to say. Oh, so refreshing. Okay. Question number one. How do you deal with a partner's ex that is constantly looking at all your social media accounts, even liked a video or two, but does not follow you or has has ever even met you, especially when they haven't dated in over eight years? Okay, so that's um kind of weird on this ex's part. And I don't know. Most people, when they do this type of thing, they use some kind of Finsta. I kind of admire her brazenness because not only is she not using a Finsta, but she's liking things too. Like she's just really comfortable with her presence being known, which which is a move. It's a decision. It's it's one way to be, and I I do find it interesting. Um, but 
here's my question. Why are you asking this question? Like, what do you mean? How do you deal? You do nothing. Live your life. Go go on. Like, you're like, this doesn't actually affect you. So this is what I'm getting at. Why do you care? Because there's a reason why you ask this question. And if you care about this, there is a reason why you care, right? Like, there's a reason. Like, what is it bringing up for you? Like, obviously, I mean, I think I can surmise based on the fact that they haven't dated in over eight years. And it doesn't really sound like you're insecure about your relationship in any way. So I don't think you're rattled for that reason. But, like, obviously, you care for some reason. Like, is it, like, bringing up, like, oh, my God, what a loser. Um, so like maybe that's something to look internal or like what like is it be like the knowledge that you're being seen by someone who has somewhat of a vested interest in you that's rattling you is it in any way affecting how you show up on social media like is it affecting what you do or don't post because that's the thing but I would look internal as to why you care like that that's my biggest question because that then will tell us where to go but as far as actionable steps nothing do nothing. Live your life. If she wants to be obsessed with you, be obsessed with you. I mean, it's kind of weird for her. Like, I, I'd love to, maybe she should write in and ask why it is that she's still hung up over her ex from almost a decade ago and so brazen with stalking the said ex's now partner because that is a fascinating thing but as far as what you need to do nothing just live your life like you know but it obviously does affect you in some way and I'd love to get to the bottom of that so if you want write in an update and let's unpack why you even care okay Moving along to question number two. Do you have any tips for increasing your sex drive? Boy, oh boy, do I ever. Okay, so very broadly speaking, a dip in libido either has a physical cause or an emotional cause, and more often than not, both. So I'm going to talk about physical first and then emotional, and then I'll kind of give you a plan, like a step-by-step plan. So as far as physical causes, the number one physical cause of like lower libido is stress. So the number one thing I would address is decreasing your stress. After that, I would do measures to improve your circulation. I would improve your nutrition. I would improve sleep and I would reduce substances. So that's kind of everything on the physical side. Um, I'll say a little bit more about each one. Obviously, decreasing stress is really loaded and you can support that certainly with improved sleep, with, um, you know, movement, with mindfulness, with nutrition. Also be on the lookout for the nervous system regulation course that's coming out because that's going to be all about like regulating your nervous system ultimately is like how to handle stress better. Um, As far as improving circulation, movement, like really good mindful movement is going to be key here. Um, 
Nutrition can also support your circulation. It'll support stress. It'll support sleep. It kind of supports everything. As far as sleep, I'm not going to get too deep into it. But if you look at um, old episodes, there's one from March or April of 2022 called 13 Ways to like. I don't know, optimize your sleep and have more energy or something to that effect where I do kind of a deeper dive into sleep. But a few things I will say is uh, watch for blue light. Um, Don't eat too late. Don't make sure you're eating enough carbs. Um, Have a really good wind down routine. Um, Make, you know, create kind of a sleep sanctuary. So your bedroom really should only be used for sleep or sex. Well, specifically, the bed should only be used for sleep or sex. So be really mindful of that. Don't ever do work in bed or things like that so that your brain just associates bed with sleep. Um, uh, You know, uh, keep it nice and cool in the bedroom. That really, really affects sleep. Um, like actually really what gets us to fall asleep is our body dropping temperature by one degree. So if the room is cold, that's going to happen a lot faster and a lot easier. Um, you know, have a good wind down routine, things like that, but definitely check out that episode where I go a lot deeper into a lot of factors on sleep. If sleep is something that you struggle with. And the last thing I want to say on physical, um, the physical side of things is to reduce your intake of substances. So that includes alcohol, it includes pot, it includes anything else. I mean, even stuff like we tend to think of like, oh, Molly, like how sexy, you know, like, ooh, we just want to rub up on each other. But actually, it really can cause sexual dysfunction, especially in men. Like really any substance can cause a lot of sexual dysfunction, but especially in men. Um, And like, yeah, like maybe Molly like makes you a little bit hornier, but it actually like I've had plenty of sex on Molly and (laughs) It makes it really hard to actually finish. So yeah, just reducing substances will help. Now I want to talk about the emotional factors because I actually think that there is a much greater emotional component to libido than there is a physical component, but everything informs each other. And I remember I always had a really high sex drive. And then when Van Guy and I broke up, my sex drive went to zero. And there was one other time where my sex drive went to zero. And that's when I was dating the German. Both times, like when I tell you it's like an on and off switch, like it literally turned off. Like I had nothing. And when Van Guy and I broke up, like I actually still have not fully recovered from that. When Ozzy and I started dating after Van Guy, it started to come back and it's certainly been better, but it's still not fully there. And I know for me, a lot of what's going on is also kind of a change in how I approach sexuality. I think for me growing up, I grew up in such a sexually repressed circumstance and household and like, you know, it was like very strict Middle Eastern, like any form of sexuality was really looked down upon. And so I think my brain kind of bifurcated sexuality in a way. So the only thing 
this is the effect of a tiny bit of alcohol in my system, by the way. I can't believe I'm about to share this. But kind of the enti- my entire life, the only way that I've been able to get off is by visualizing almost like like beyond BDSM, I would put it at like non-consensual things. And I think it's the effect of that specific type of trauma. I actually talk to a lot of women who have the same thing, um, like have like kind of rape fantasies and stuff. And I think like the through line that I find is that all of us grew up in really like not sex positive households. And so fantasizing about someone taking the choice away, like allows you to continue being a good girl kind of and not being bad um but still have that sexual satisfaction and so as I've become more and more aware of this um and like certain things that happen with Van Guy definitely played into that so I think the way that I've approached sexuality historically like really kind of grosses me out, especially now that I'm in a really like loving, committed, like beautiful, stunning relationship. I want to have really connected sex with my partner. Like I don't want to have like gross, misogynistic, like <laughs> um, forceful kind of sex. Like I want to have like really connected, um, deep, sex like love making if you will and so that kind of push and pull has like really really affected my sex drive um so that's a lot more information than you wanted to know about me and my approach to sexuality but here we are um so I'd be curious to know if anything has happened or anything has changed like if you're in a relationship has anything happened like I see a lot of times like again like when I was dating the German I had literally zero sex drive because like I actually wasn't into him and I wasn't willing to see that but I see a lot especially with men for some reason I see this where they'll have a really hard time being physical with someone that they have some kind of pent-up resentment towards and like aren't voicing it and aren't speaking it so if like is there something like that going on is there some kind of emotional need that isn't being met on the other hand and I don't really mean to be gender stereotyping as much as I am here but it just I'm just talking about trends that I've personally anecdotally seen a lot of women that I know have a really hard time with their sex drive when there is a lack of emotional intimacy in the relationship. So you're not actually like really spending quality time together and doing things. Then it's like, well, I don't really want to fuck you if you're not going to be invested in this relationship emotionally. Like I need that emotional connection to be able to have that sexual connection. So I would look at things like that. And then if you are in a long-term partnership, one thing that I would be really mindful of is that You know, when you first start dating someone, there's such a rush of dopamine in your system. It's really like neurochemically, it's a lot like being on drugs and it's really exciting and fun and things like that. And so that obviously gets your sex drive going more. And then as the relationship goes on, that dopamine rush wears off and like the newness and the excitement is gone. And so the sex drive also takes a dip. That's really normal. And so there are ways that you could like, light it up and keep it fresh and do new things and you know have more excitement together for sure but then on the other side of that if there was some kind of underlying sexual thing in the past 
the initial dopamine rush of a new relationship can kind of overpower that. But then when that dopamine rush is gone, you are back to that old thing. And you might think to yourself, well, like, I thought I was over that because it was gone for a while. But like the reason it was gone is because the dopamine rush was overpowering it. And I'll give an example to make this more concrete. I have this friend, Ari, who um, dated a guy who was like really kind of abusive and really critical of her and things like that. And after that, she kind of had like sexual issues. Like she just like really had a hard time with intimacy and was really insecure about her body and the way that she looked and the way that she looked in the bedroom and things like that. And I guess it didn't come up much because she wasn't single for that long. And then she met this guy and they fell in love. Sorry if you can hear the sirens, New York City living. What can I say? They fell in love. They start dating. And, you know, they when they start dating, she has that dopamine rush of an initial new ex- exciting relationship. And so they're super sexual and they're fucking all the time. And then like a year into their relationship, all of a sudden she has no sex drive and she's like, what the fuck is going on? And what's going on was the trauma from this past relationship. But she didn't really see it because a when they first broke up, she just wasn't really trying to fuck. So she didn't think much of it. And then she started dating this guy and it wasn't there at all because because the dopamine rush of the newness of the relationship was overpowering that trauma that she had there. But then once that dopamine rush wore off, that trauma came back. And so that's what was going on. So these are all a lot of things I would think about. Now, I, if I were to give you kind of a step-by-step plan I would first focus on nutrition just because like it has so many benefits aside from this specific things that you can eat that um, are really going to support you (laughs) in your libido journey would be bananas, figs, avocados, berries, um, cacao. And by cacao, I don't mean processed chocolate that has sugar added to it. I mean unprocessed raw cacao. Um, like ceremonial grade cacao, basil and garlic, but really any sort of fresh produce is really going to be extremely helpful. I would start exercising. I would start um, focusing on sleep and I would start tackling stress. And then I would really start looking at, are there any emotional factors going on here that I might be ignoring? So maybe start journaling on that, start addressing it, you know, in a deeper state. If you're a Blush Academy member, I would recommend using the NRPs, which are Neural Rewiring Practices. It's what we've rebranded the guided meditations as because they're not really meditations so much as they are like actual neural rewiring practices. I mean, it's it's a 20-minute long recording that really helps you rewire your brain into a way that's more beneficial for you and the life that you want to lead. Um, and if you're in a relationship, I would start planning new and exciting things to do. Like, could you... Uh, Do activities you haven't done before. Go play basketball together. Play golf. Like do something physical and active and like exciting and like, I don't know, do bumper cars, do kind of silly childish things. Just do things to release some dopamine and like have some fun and excitement. 
And then on top of all that, um, there are some herbs that are really, really excellent for, um, for libido. My number one recommendation for this, and this is for all genders, is maca root. Maca root is such a powerful herb in supporting libido, sex drive, sexual function, all of the things. Cinnamon is really great, especially um, Ceylon cinnamon. Am I pronouncing that right? C-E-Y-L-O-N. It's a specific type of cinnamon, but it just has more nutritional benefits. Um, Ashwagandha is really, really great. Reishi is great. And Rose is really, really great. There are some other ones, but these would be my top, top, top recommendations. I think Ginkgo biloba is pretty good too. And also, has like a lot of um, good neurological benefits, but really the better you treat your body and yourself, the better your sex drive is going to be. Okay. Question number three, where do I go or what do I do to meet a decent guy in NYC? Do I stay on the apps? I mean, I try to do activities. I went to an art show like a week ago for an example, for example, but of course the guy I met disclosed on day two that he's in the middle of a shitty divorce and then started crying. <laughs> Is my picker off? Am I picking the wrong men? Um, do I give up putting myself out there because I feel so defeated and it's hard to pick myself up every time there's a disappointment? Anyway, thanks again for hearing me out. Appreciate your thoughts and time. Um, okay, first of all, that's so funny. Second of all, you went to an art show and met a guy. Let's not discount that, okay? Do you know how many art shows I've been to and not met a guy? And that's such a cool, fun New York City place to meet someone. So, A, you're doing great. But I'm going to say something that probably no one would say to you in this situation. I would look internal. I don't think the problem is anything on the external plane. Like you're on apps, you're actively doing things. So it's not a lack of you trying or you putting yourself out there. So I would just keep doing those things or you could take a break for a minute if you want. Either way, you're going to need to go internal and figure out why it is that you keep attracting emotionally unavailable people. And I kind of have a few answers for you. It's one of a few things. But Ultimately, if we're seeing a pattern come up over and over and over again in our lives, it's because our brains are seeking out that pattern. And the reason that our brains seek something out, I know I talk about this a lot and I sound kind of like a broken record, is because our brains will always choose things that are familiar to it over something that's unfamiliar. And that's a safety mechanism. It's because our brain's only job is to keep us alive. And so if it has encountered something in the past, even if it sucked, even if it was really painful, it knows that it it survived that experience. It knows that that experience will keep you alive, even if it comes kind of close to killing you. If you survived it, you survived it. And so it's always going to choose that experience over something it doesn't know. So if all you've seen are emotionally unavailable situations, that your brain is going to seek that out. Now, I'm not even talking about your dating history. Like, yes, like clearly in your dating history, you keep choosing emotionally unavailable people. But where I would look into is your childhood. 
what was the relationship of your childhood caretakers? And also, how were they showing up for you? Were they capable of meeting your needs? Because if not, that's something I would do a lot of reparenting and inner child work around. And then look at their relationship with each other. Again, if they weren't like really lovingly being there for each other in a way that you would want out of a partner, then again, I would do inner child work and reparenting around that. And what I mean is I would use something like a blush NRP and really get down into a hypnotic state and then visualize a childhood where you had parents who were really loving and emotionally supportive with each other and really just modeled the types of things that you're looking for in a relationship now so that you can see it and then who also were there and meeting your needs and very attuned to your needs very consistently. And the reason I tell you to do that is because are when you visualize something, especially in like a delta brainwaves, uh, delta or theta brainwaves state, your brain experiences it as though it actually happened. So it'll start to build the neural pathways of someone who actually did experience that in childhood. And so then when you go on apps and start swiping, your subconscious brain is going to be like, oh, that's the type of person who can give me that type of relationship that I've experienced. Going back to your brain will seek out things that it has experienced. And so if you give it that experience in a deep hypnotic state, then it'll start to seek it out. You just have to repeat it enough times so that it competes with your long history of emotionally unavailable people. The other thing that I want to draw your attention to Yes, you say that you want a relationship and I definitely believe you and no way am I questioning that. But something, a threat that I always see when I work with people who are consistently attracting emotionally unavailable people is that in on some level, in some way, subconsciously, they themselves are emotionally unavailable. And so I would really start thinking in what ways could I maybe be emotionally unavailable? Is it like, what do you associate with relationships? And I'll give an example. So I, you know, was single. I was just desperately dying to meet someone to have a deep emotional relationship with. Like all I wanted was like a real partner, right? But I realized on some level, I was actually pushing away partnership. And the reason I was pushing away partnership is because I didn't like, um, I, I didn't like my parents' relationship. Sorry, I got distracted because apparently my Wi-Fi is off. So <laughs> all this stuff is popping up on my screen. But yeah, I didn't like my parents' relationship. And subconsciously, I associated a deep committed relationship with being trapped, being imprisoned, with having to do all of the work around the house and not having an equal there to help you because that's what I witnessed in my parents' relationship. And so subconsciously, I was pushing away love because that's what I associated with it. But when I did a lot of reparenting and I visualized parents who were really equals and a lot of the time uh, parents where the dad stayed home and did a lot around the house and the mom was the primary breadwinner and the dad was really there supporting her and doing things for her and things like that, those neural pathways became stronger and stronger and stronger. And so I no longer had this subconscious fear that a relationship meant that I was going to be locked down, that 
that I was going to be giving up my career, that I was going to be abused, that I was going to be any of these things, because instead I was looping on that experience that I was giving myself. So I would really start thinking about the ways in which you could be pushing away love because you have some kind of fear around it. And what actually might be really helpful if you're a Blush Academy member, if you look at the new NRPs in the um, Anxious Attachment course, do the Facing Your Fears one. And that one, you really get to sit down with the part of you that's afraid and have a conversation with it and be like, okay, what are you afraid of? Like, how are you pushing this away? Like, what are your fears? So you can get really um, clear on that and then you can work through it. Um, let me know if this resonates. Would love an update on this situation. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to skip this next question because we're going longer on time than I thought. So I might come back to it if we are doing better on time or I might save it for next month's Q&A episode. Okay. So I think this would be question number four. Now, fucking sirens more. Apparently the world is on fire and my Wi-Fi is out. Like who knows what the fuck is happening while I'm recording this shit. Okay. Hi, I've been struggling to lose weight for as long as I can remember. I have insulin resistance, which makes it near impossible. I was considering trying keto, which I know you're really against, but I feel like I don't have a lot of choices because my weight is starting to affect both my physical and my mental health. Okay, so first of all, I just want to validate you because I think that we are living in a time where it's almost like cancelable to say that you want to lose weight. And there's just, I love the body positivity movement and I love how much more conscious and aware we've becoming, we've been becoming of these things. But I also just want to say it's okay to want to lose weight. It's okay to want to like look better. It's okay to want to feel better. Like you don't even have to give an excuse. I mean, obviously like if your weight is already fine and you want to lose more weight, that's problematic and we'd unpack it. But I just, because of that last line, it felt so defensive. Like, no, I really have to lose weight. Like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. You're allowed to want that. Um, also really just want to validate, you know, I have a lot of friends with insulin resistance and I know how difficult it's going to be. Now I'm going to get really, really brutally honest real quick. There has been so much misinformation out there about insulin and insulin resistance. And here's the thing. It's not like insulin resistance makes you gain weight or insulin resistance makes it impossible to lose weight in and of itself. The only way that you gain weight is by eating, consuming more calories than you're burning. And the only way that you lose weight is by burning more calories than you're consuming. That is true 100% of the time. That's true if you're just, you know, a regular, regular person. That's true if you have diabetes. That's true if you have insulin resistance. That's true if you're pre-diabetic. That's true if you have hypothyroid. That's true if you have hyperthyroid. That is true 100% of the time. Now, the reason that insulin resistance makes it harder to lose weight is because insulin resistant effect insulin resistance affects satiety. 
that's the reason. It's not like it's doing this internal mechanism. I mean, I had a friend who is a doctor, by the way, who goes, yeah, I have insulin resistance, so I can't really lose weight because anytime I have a piece of fruit, my body immediately stores it at fat as fat. And I was like, no, that's that's just factually untrue. That's literally not what happens. Instead, what happens is you're eating more because you have insulin resistance because it's making you less satisfied with your food. Now, I want to talk a little bit about insulin resistance. So there is this really good study on insulin resistance. I think it's called the PREDICT-1 study. And it found that the biggest factor of an insulin response is blood sugar levels, which like no shock there. Obviously, the two are connected. The number two factor is your gut microbiome. And the number three factor is excess body fat. And so we're just going to put aside blood sugar for now because... It connects to everything, but we're just going to leave it aside for now. So really where you can see a tremendous amount of control is your gut microbiome, which is a massive, massive, massive factor and body fat. So like the more excess body fat you have, the more insulin resistance you're going to have. And like hypothetically, let's say someone with insulin resistance was like in some kind of plane crash on a desert island. and There was no food. They would lose weight. They would lose weight because they just are consuming fewer calories than they're putting out because there's, you know, food scarcity and food shortages and things like that. They would lose weight. And then as they're losing weight, they would actually become more and more insulin sensitive. So like the opposite of insulin resistant because they're losing that body fat. Okay. Um... Now, I want to talk a little bit about blood sugar and what exactly a blood sugar dip is and what it is not, because there's a lot of misconception around this lately, especially as we, uh, you know, more and more people have like CGMs and things like that. And CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, can be really great for people with diabetes, but for the most part, it can send a lot of misinformation out there. And one thing that we really come down on is anything that raises blood sugar. We think like, oh, it's going to affect my insulin resistance or things like that. Especially I hear this in context of fruit, like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's affecting your blood sugar too much. And here's the thing. It is normal for your blood sugar to go up after consuming something. That is a normal body response. What we want to avoid are blood sugar dips. And what a blood sugar dip is, is, is when you eat something, your blood sugar rises, which is normal, but then it goes down. And when it goes down, it goes below your original baseline. That is a blood sugar dip. So eating, let's say a strawberry and your blood sugar goes up and then a few hours later, it goes down to your original baseline. That is not a blood sugar dip. That is not something that you need to guard against. What you need to guard against is when your blood sugar goes up and then dips below that original baseline. And that is what happens when you have actual sugar. And I'm going to define what I mean by sugar in a second, but I just want to give this statistic. One blood sugar dip per day, just one, on average increases calorie consumption by 300 calories. So having just one blood sugar dip will cause you to overeat 
by 300 calories. And most people in on the standard American diet are experiencing many blood sugar dips throughout the day because we're eating these processed foods that have sugar added to them, which causes an insulin spike and then a blood sugar dip. And then we're overeating and overeating. Now, I want to talk about what sugar is and what sugar is not in this context. Sugar is something that has the glucose stripped from its original fiber source. What sugar is not is something that is a whole food in a whole package. So any type of fruit, even if it has a lot of sugar, when it's still tied to its fiber source is not going to cause a blood sugar dip. Even if you have insulin resistance, it's not going to cause a blood sugar dip. This is just a myth. So long as it's tied to its original fiber source, you're good. Where the problem comes in is when you strip the fiber source. So that could be something like table sugar, powder sugar. That is the glucose from a sugar cane plant that's gone through a tremendous amount of processing, but that's neither here nor there. But it has all of the fiber stripped. If you look at an actual sugar cane plant, it's extremely fibrous. It's actually so fibrous that I don't think we can chew it and swallow it. I've never tried, but I don't think we'd be capable of doing it because that's how fibrous it is. If you were to eat that plant in its whole form, you'd be good because that tremendous amount of fiber is slowing the release of the glucose into your bloodstream so it won't cause that rise and dip. What was I going to say? Okay, so like a fruit juice would be sugar in this situation because you're stripping the fiber, you're leaving the glucose. Other things that are sugar that are sometimes like heralded as healthy is like maple syrup, agave, coconut sugar, coconut nectar. All of these are forms of glucose stripped from its fiber source, which is going to act exactly like table sugar in your body. And it's going to give you that rise and that dip. Um, Corn syrup, rice syrup, tapioca syrup, Sugar, glucose, things like that are things to look out for. But things that are fine are whole plant foods. Fruits in their whole form are fine. They're great. They have the fiber. And really, 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 ultimately, the key here is fiber. Also, I'm going to talk about uh, keto for one second So there was a study on um, comparing keto versus a plant-based diet, um, and they looked at a lot of factors, including blood sugar. And what they found was that people on the keto diet did lose more weight than people on the plant-based diet. I should say that the diets were controlled for calories and for protein. So both of the diets had the same number of calories. Oh, no, 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 not calories. Sorry. The protein was the same. They measured how many calories people were eating. And so on average, people on the keto diet did lose more weight, but they primarily were losing muscle and water and losing very little, if any, fat. So keep that in mind. Um, People on the plant-based diet were equally satiated, satiated, um, but consumed 700 calories less per day. 700 calories less per day is a substantial difference, is a difference that would cause you to lose fat in a very short amount of time. Um, Here's where I think it gets really interesting, though. The keto diet 
like people on the keto diet had blood sugars that were about 30% higher after consuming the exact same number of um, sugar as on the plant-based diet. So essentially what this study showed is that keto can cause insulin resistance. And ultimately the key here, the reason, the underlying effect, and what I want to get at for you, what the answer is, is fiber. And there are two reasons why fiber is tremendously beneficial in this context. Number one, fiber has a bit of a barrier effect. And by that, I mean, it slows down digestion. So the reason that you know, fruit doesn't cause a blood blood sugar dip is because the fiber in the fruit is is um, gatekeeping is causing a barrier into how fast that glucose hits your bloodstream. So it's slowing down the digestion so that all of the sugar doesn't instantly cause your bloodstream uh, go into your bloodstream, cause a blood sugar spike, and then a subsequent dip. So that's the number one way. The number two way is actually really, really interesting. So essentially, the human body can't break down fiber, but the microbes in the gut can. And so when we eat fiber-rich foods, we're actually feeding our helpful gut bacteria. And the microbes in the gut break down that fiber and release short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids release GLP-1. Now, GLP-1 might be familiar to you because we've been talking about it a lot in context of Ozempic. Ever heard of it, the drug that's making people lose weight? GLP-1 is a good thing. Now, that GLP-1 then goes to beta cells in the pancreas and release insulin. Short-chain fatty acids also work their magic in the liver and muscles and in fat tissues. They stop the release of fat into the the bloodstream, they increase the absorption of glucose so that we can get sugar into the muscles, which is necessary for building and maintaining muscles. So part of the reason why people on keto lose so much weight is because they're actually losing muscles because they have no glycogen stores in their muscles. And the short-chain fatty acids stop the release of fat into the liver. So without getting like too much more scientific, if I were to give you a plan like a step-by-step plan. Number one, start taking really good probiotics. I really like seed probiotic. You can use um, the code BLUSH15 for 15% off your first order, but um, find any probiotic that works for you, but like a rigorously tested one, one that really survives the journey into the gut. That's why I like seed because it's one of the only probiotics out there that actually survives that journey. And it's because they have a capsule and capsule situation. I think it's helpful to take a symbiotic, which is what seed is also, which means that it has prebiotics in with the probiotics. It just helps them colonize better. Um, really focus on fiber. And if you're on a standard American diet, you're going to have to increase your fiber and take very slowly. You can't go zero to a hundred or you're going to get pretty sick and have a lot of discomfort, but just increase it gradually and your guts will adjust. Even if you think like, oh, this food makes me gassy. This food makes me bloated. Like I can't have cauliflower. I can't have broccoli. I can't have Brussels sprouts. I can't have beans. I can't have garlic. The reason you can't have these foods is because your gut is in disarray. If you just just start eating them. Your gut microbiome will improve and you'll be able to eat them. Um, focus on foods that are higher in volume, more nutrient dense and less calorie dense. So that's really most 
whole plant foods. Think of like the really water rich ones. So like instead of having dried fruit, for example, I would have fresh water rich fruits like melons and um, mangoes and papayas and things like that. You know, pineapple, um, just like the juicy, really nourishing foods. And I would take a 20 minute walk after every single meal that you eat. Try these things. I think you're going to see a massive, massive, massive improvement. Um, wow, we've been doing this for a long time. So I think I'm going to do one, maybe two more questions. And then um, and then we'll save the rest for next week's. Okay. Um, hey, I love your podcast so much and I keep up often. I do have a question maybe you can answer in a future podcast. I'm in a relationship and we have had some issues and he's really been great, but I'm definitely anxiously attached and actively trying to regulate my nervous system. I want to visualize my life without him sometimes because I want to prepare if something were to go wrong, but I but couldn't that also make me a bit more anxious? Um, just thinking about us separating, even though that's something I don't want. It makes me feel like maybe I'll create more anxious tendencies or overthinking. What do you think? Do you think I can create a boundary between overthinking and visualization and vis- visualizing an alternate life decision in a healthy way? I have formed some of my own answers, but would love to hear yours. Yes, this is a really, really good question, and I have a lot to say on this. Number one, regulating your nervous system is absolutely key and totally necessary, and it's 100% where you should start. But beyond that, I would also really go into addressing the childhood wounds that caused the anxious attachment to begin with because regulating the nervous system is definitely the first step, and it's a necessary step, but I don't, for most people, the story doesn't end there. And doing inner child work on those attachment wounds and really reparenting yourself and giving yourself the foundation of a secure childhood will do so much here. Now, I want to address this, um, like facing fears visualization. I assume this comes from, I've talked about it recently, and it is a really powerful tool, but it's very clear that you have a tremendous amount of resistance to doing it. And I think that's really, really fun. And I want to unpack that fear. So essentially what you have, like if you're, I don't know if you're a Blush Academy member, but in the Blush Academy, there is a NRP, a neural rewiring practice where you can sit down with the part of you that's having this fear and really face that fear, right? And it's premised on um, this modality of therapy called internal family systems, where essentially it looks at different but like parts of ourselves that are all trying to protect us, right? And so there are parts of us that are afraid of things and those parts are really only trying to protect us. And so in this NRP, you get to sit down with this fearful part of you and just experience what the worst case scenario is, what your worst fear is, so that you can come out on the other side and it doesn't have this power over you anymore. Now, either the part of you that is holding on to that fear, or it could be an entirely separate part of you 
there is a part of you that has so much resistance to this that it's now trying to tell you, no, 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 we can't do this because like if we visualize him leaving, then it's going to make things even worse. That is a protective part of you that's telling you that. It's not your true highest best self that's saying that. In fact, all fears are coming from protective parts of us. Like that's not intuition. That's just protective parts of us. So what I would invite you to do is sit down with the part of you that's so afraid that's telling you like, no, we can't even visualize we can't even entertain this idea because it's going to backfire. Sit down with that part of you and see why they have resistance to this because we could visualize anything and it's fine. Like I have bizarre anxieties that I can sit here and visualize. Like I... I'm afraid I'm really afraid of cars and like car crashes and things like that. And I'm fully aware of the fact that like me visualizing myself being in a car crash isn't making me more anxious of being in a car crash. It actually does help. It really does help. But at worst, it would be neutral. Like it wouldn't make it worse. Like it wouldn't create more of that. It's not like, you know, you'd never think thought or heard of this. And now all of a sudden it's like bringing it into your mind. So there is a protective part of you that doesn't want you to even confront this fear. And I'd be curious to know why that protective part of you doesn't want you to confront that fear. So what I would suggest is like really sitting down in a deep hypnotic state, again, if you're a Blush Academy member, use the facing your fears NRP and sit down and don't even force yourself to uh, face this like worst case scenario of your partner leaving. We're not even going to do that yet. That's for another time. First, we want to sit down and have a conversation with the part of you that is afraid that facing this fear is going to make things worse for you. And we really want to get to the bottom of why you have that fear. Now, if you are a Blush Academy member, you'll notice that this whole section is at the very end of the Attachment Styles course. And there's a reason for that, because I want you to do the inner child work first and address the attachment wounds first before you even get to this part. I think there's a lot of value in that. But either way, you're going to need to sit down and have a conversation with this part of you and see why it is that it's trying to get you to not do this because it's trying to protect you in some way. I know that may have been kind of a confusing answer because it is like I almost feel like I need to draw a diagram. So if this doesn't make sense to you, please, please, please um, DM me or message me, however you communicate, and we can unpack it together. And yeah, I'm going to leave it at that because we just hit the hour mark. So if you submitted a question today, would love an update on your situation. If you submitted a question and it wasn't addressed in this episode, I will address it in next month's Q&A. Um, that's going to be the last Tuesday of September. And um, if you have a question that you didn't submit, submit it for that episode and you know, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, share this episode with someone who you think would benefit from it. Please leave a review. We need the reviews. And 
because it is the end of the month, um, we're going to be doing our monthly giveaway. And the way to enter that is to just leave a review for the podcast. You can either leave your Instagram handle in the review or you can screenshot the review and email it to me at theblushpod at gmail.com. And at the end of every month, I randomly select a winner and the winner wins um, a 12-month membership to the Blush Academy because I'm getting rid of the six-month membership. So you don't want to miss the giveaway, but even if you don't want to enter the giveaway, please rate, review, subscribe, and share the episode with people you think would benefit from it. Put it in your Instagram stories, tag at BlushPod. I want to see, and also the past few episodes I've completely forgotten, but we were ending the show with Gratefuls, where I list three things that I'm grateful for this week. And the reason we do that is because practicing gratitude trains your brain to look for the good things in life and actually measurably makes you a more optimistic and a happier person. And so I invite you as I list the three things that I'm grateful for this week for you to also list the three things that you're grateful for this week. And just a reminder, you want to list three new things that you're grateful for because it's the practice of forcing your brain to scan for new things to be grateful for that is actually strengthening the neural pathway that looks for the good things in life. So you don't want to just keep repeating the same things over and over again. Okay, um, I am grateful for the this tofu company called The Bridge. They're based in Connecticut and their tofu is so fucking good that it's almost, I would say it competes with like a feta cheese. Like it is creamy, delicious, the best flavor in tofu I've ever had. And I can't wait to get back from this birthday party tonight and just mainline some tofu. Um, I am grateful that... Huh, what am I grateful for? Let me think. Oh, um, no, this would require too much explanation. <laughs> okay, um, I'm grateful for all the new listeners. There's, you know, steadily new listeners coming in and Listen, new listeners is how we continue to do the show and how I can continue to give my all to the show. So I'm really grateful for you guys. And, and, ooh, okay. I'm grateful that there are people who want me at their wedding because I acknowledge that every person that you invite is like hundreds of dollars. And so, you know, instead of bitching and whining about weddings, I should actually be grateful that there are people who want me at their wedding at all. Okay. I hope that actually kind of compensated for how cunty I was being at the top of the episode. <laughs> um, seriously, love you guys. Don't forget, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. Love you guys so much. We will talk next week. Bye.